2: Welcome to the Race IndyCar Podcast. Normal service resume this week as J.R. Hildebrand returns as my co-host. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll obviously break down another baffling Scott Dixon victory where he went from back to front using all of his naus and experience and fuel saving and tyre management. But we don't want to give all that away because we're going to get into that a little bit further. We'll talk about the other guys on the podium as well. Pato Ward and David Malucas repeating some of his gateway magic from last year. We'll talk about Joseph Newgarden being out of the championship hunt. We'll talk about Marcus Ericsson's move from Ganassi to Andretti, which has been confirmed in the period between the last two podcasts. We'll also break down Portland, the race that's coming up this weekend. It's a quick turnaround, three races in a row now to finish the championship. So there's plenty for us to talk about, whether it's uh, the weekend just gone or the weekend coming up. So before we do any of that, we have to ask JR, anyone who follows us on social media will know that he's been driving some cars recently. So how was Laguna Seca for you? It looked like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it was definitely fun uh, out there for the um, Rolex. What is it called now? The Rolex Monterey Reunion. You said kind of, you know, typically called the Monterey Historics for for a long time. It's an event that you know I've gone to as a as I guess a sort of a fan or a spectator because my dad's raced in it, you know, since I was a little kid. So it's kind of fun just to go out there and you know I always tell people that vintage racing it was was a big part of why I became a fan of motorsport when I was a kid, just because you get to see so much different stuff, um, you know, so many different eras of different, different designs and sounds. And, um, you know, I think Goodwood, I think has definitely surpassed anything that we have in the U S but, um, but, but the historics is still one of those events that it's pretty, pretty well curated and you definitely get like a lot of the heavy hitting, like the real cars from, Um, some great eras of motorsport, whether it be Formula One or Trans Am or Can-Am, whatever. You know, anything especially that's kind of like 60s into the 70s uh, gets a pretty big pull there. So um, yeah, I jumped in in a 67 Camaro in the old Trans Am group, which was a lot of fun. um, And then drove, they have sort of a modern or a more modern Trans Am group for all the tube frame cars from like the late 80s into the early 90s. And I showed up it's this car that my dad just recently acquired um and it was sort of like okay this thing should be if it's sorted like should be pretty fast and and I'm it's it's in my wheelhouse of cars that like I'm definitely going to drive the absolute hell out of and it should be able to withstand <laughs> that like anything that's you know you get into the 80s and they're all like real race cars anything before that is kind of like even for a 10 lap race you got to look after it a little bit and then Ron fellows shows up to drive this twin turbo (laughs) or this, it's a single turbo uh, like mobile one Corvette that Dan banks, who basically was the crew chief for the Corvette Lamont team, you know, at Pratt Miller for like 20 years has his own engine program. That's kicking ass and silver crown and all this kind of stuff. Uh, He's built this like 1100 horsepower turbo six. Um, So it's So needless to say, I was not as good as Veron in that car, but uh, <laughs> it's just fun. It's it's a cool. It's kind of it's fun to go to the racetrack and drive sometimes where the vibe is totally different and it's not hyper competitive and you're just there to to go kind of have fun. And uh, I definitely try to take advantage of that as much as possible. So yeah, good times and and got to scope out Laguna basically. I mean, obviously some teams have gone and tested there, but I was getting some texts from folks that weren't at the text or weren't at the test just asking about the repave and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it definitely, it feels, feels very similar. Like doesn't, I, I drove, I drove in this event, albeit not like apples to apples. I wasn't in any of the same cars, but I think the general consensus was the track was definitely, you know, it's a second and a half or a couple of seconds quicker. You know, the, there is, a, I don't think noticeable probably for IndyCar guys, but there is, there is one place on the track, you know, e- even before the repave, Laguna was one of those places that much, uh, you know, very uh, unlike tracks historically when they, when they haven't been repaved in a long time, they sort of get ripply and bumpy. Laguna was still very smooth. And so interestingly, there's like a new fresh. Bump that was in a, in a low forest car, very upsetting over the top of the hill in turn one, like going down into turn two, which I thought was kind of weird. But, but for anybody, you know, who's out there wondering about, I mean, I was very skeptical of kind of, they've added extra pavement at the exits in a few places, you know, for the most part, I think once you get in a high forest car, these are not, these are not going to be parts of the road that you're really even using that much anyway. So rather than skipping ahead to talk about Laguna, we can kind of put a put a pin in that for the next time around but um, yeah cool just to kind of get a little bit of a feel for the track in anticipation of the IndyCar guys getting back
2: out there. It's good to know we don't have to boycott the season finale then. Yeah And demand that we go back to 1976 or something exactly based on the all of the runoff kind of being uh, installed but that is good i was kind of surprised um i don't know if they could run it there but um that brian herter didn't run his 98 race winning car there now he's had that as a gift from colin earlier in the season i thought maybe that'd be a good opportunity to run it out there but in between the podcast we had the the kind of news emerging that that Colton will run like a throwback, um, shell style livery for, for Andretti in the last race of the season at Laguna, anyway. So, I guess that's part of it,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely think like we need to see Brian do some demo laps, if nothing else, yeah. Uh, like, for sure. bring it out on the yeah. car weekend and go do a few laps. Like, yeah, man. there's it's plenty of time,
2: it's like it runs it yeah, everything, yeah. so it should be, um,
1: yeah, or let Colton better yet, let Colton go do a few laps.
2: Yeah. And, like, that'd be badass, <laughs>
1: actually. Like, throw, throw some reds on it and see what he can do. <laughs>
2: Awesome. All right. Well, let's get into uh, let's get into Gateway before we get too far off topic. Although Laguna is going to come up so quickly that I don't think it's that bad for us to to chat about it now because it's going to be uh, we're going to run out of time for for the next three uh, podcasts trying to whip everything out here. But um, obviously, we had Scott Dixon win the race. Um, uh, another sort of fuel mileage and, and tire situation for for the second race in a row. Came from fifteenth this time instead of sixteenth. But yeah, really kind of interesting race uh, from a strategy perspective. Uh, I guess at least initially the tires were going off so quick that people weren't necessarily getting a full tank of fuel out of their out of their stints, but Dixon was cuz he stretched his first two stints and was kind of making it look like he was going to try and do a three-stopper, right? Um and then the caution that came out on lap 122 kind of neutralized it and made it look like it was going to be a a two-stop for everyone to the end, but then Dixon stretched it again. <laughs> and uh, this is what I kind of want to get into with this, J.R., just kind of your opinion on this, because I guess a few people tried to kind of follow him, um, because I guess part of the marvel of the Indy road course win from a couple of weeks back, and if you need a, a refresher on that, go back and listen to our episode on that. JR gave us some brilliant insight into what it's like as an Indy car driver to be saving fuel and, and tyres um, in the same car that everybody else is driving. It's not, a, it's not particularly a, an easy task to do, you know, much better than the rest of the opposition because they're all driving similar machinery. But um, yeah, I, I guess it, a few people tried to kind of copy him. And a few people also tried to copy him at the road course as well and kind of bailed really quickly. Um, and we kind of saw a similar thing here. We saw Power trying to stretch it, but he'd pitted early enough on his penultimate stop that he wasn't going to be able to make that, um, even if he was in a Honda, which we think is better on fuel mileage than than Chevrolet at the moment anyway. Um, yeah, were you, were you kind of surprised to see a few more of those guys, especially the guys who pitted kind of seven laps later under the caution? Um try and push that a little bit further. I guess Marcus Ericsson was one of the key kind of, or, or one of the bigger names to kind of bail out of that strategy when it looked like it could be could be doable. Do you think this is just a case of people just being kind of, again, baffled by what Dixon's able to do and just thinking that there was no way they were going to be able to do it and there was no point even trying? Or were you, were you surprised not to see a few more of them kind of commit to it and give it a go?
1: Yeah, I, I was particularly, I'd be interested just to know why the eight crew didn't. That was, to your point, that was the one that really stood out It seemed like they were in a really good position to do it. And that I guess you had a little bit of a uh, sort of data set from the race up until that point. But even you had they had the margin to go at least as long as Scott was going to go, which they didn't even do that in the like after the caution. They didn't do that. It, It seemed like that would have been. Maybe kind of the, obvious, and uh, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight to know that Scott ended up basically just maintaining a lapse, you know, buffer on the field and, and didn't ever get screwed by it. There were some ways where let's say, let's say new garden hadn't crashed. So you have Joseph and Pato, like you have multiple cars that end up back on the lead lap. If you get a late race, yellow. Those cars on the lead lap cars, much fresher tires than Dixon, not having to save fuel at all. If they, if they get lap cars out of the way, Dixon's just a sitting duck. Like he's, you know, so, so there were some, there was some risk, I think, in making that strategy call because you're just, you're really exposed to cars with better tires at the end of the race. Um, So I guess I would say that's, that could have been. On some people's minds, in terms of why they didn't do it, Marcus, it, Marcus was the one in particular. just seemed like there wasn't really much risk involved there. Like if he ended up on if he's on if he stays on Scott's strategy, he's going to leapfrog a bunch of guys. If he doesn't do that, then he's just finishing kind of wherever he's running. like so that so that was it. that was one that, as it was happening, seemed a little strange that they bailed off of it as early as they did. Um I guess I think that, in a general sense, There's a couple of things that stood out to me. One is you just have you. It seems like the nine guys are getting this together, which is a good thing, right? Like we've seen a sort of tumultuous last two years or, you know, 18 to 24 months with the nine crew. Last year, it was really pronounced Uh, this year, a little less so. But you could tell through the first half of the season that Scott just did. Scott, in particular, was still being a little more vocal than normal than, than we expect from him about his sort of disappointment that they're just not quite firing on all cylinders at all times, that they're still leaving points and positions and lap time and whatever on the table in ways that at least it seemed in his mind, like we're sort of low hanging fruit or, or they, they should have been able to execute better as a group. And, and I think you know, we can we can you can lump him into that, too. There were some times where he felt like he just didn't quite do it in a, in a scenario that he had the expectation of himself that he sh- should have been able to. So that's a part of this It's just you see these guys really. And and with that, with a little bit more cohesion and it's why Scott Dixon has won six championships is. There are some, you know, we talked about this last weekend and this is a lot of the same thing basically here, you know, there were a lot of similarities to me in terms of just the way that this race was playing out. And the fact that you have Scott Dixon as the guy who is on, he's, he's the one that's committed to this alternate strategy and he's the one making it work, which is that, with with a greater degree of trust and cohesion among the people who are making all of those decisions, including the driver, including the race engineer, who we know is new for Scott this year. And maybe so that's just taken some time to kind of like get everything rolling, ex- get, get completely on the same page between the two of them and Michael and Chip and whoever else is a part of that decision-making tree on the timing stand that they, I feel like... These last two races, Scott winning these last two races has really been a result of them having complete faith and confidence in Scott Dixon to be able to do the things that Scott Dixon is especially good at, right? And so them just recognizing that, and probably from the, you know, and and when you're a little bit on the back foot going in, they obviously had the grid penalty, so they started further back, started 10 spots back from where he or he qualified, so that's a scenario where you kind of know that you actually have a pretty good car, but you're not going to be starting where you want to. Gateway, it it has proven to actually be quite a difficult track to pass on, even with this kind of lower downforce Indy car and all that kind of stuff. So, it makes me think that this group maybe just looked at the race from the before the race started and said, "We think this can be done in three stops." even without a lot of caution, you got a lot of caution right at the beginning of the race. So there that's probably factored into their playbook. Like, especially if we get some early cautions, we think we can do this on three stops and communicating that to Scott, Scott, understanding that that's kind of a part of their strategy and he's got to keep the tires underneath the thing, which he, which we talked about last weekend. We know he's especially good at being able to do, um, not driving the hell out of the thing for the first five laps and burning tires up, like managing basically just to kind of play defense, let the strategy come to them. This is uh, as compared to like an Iowa as another, as the other short oval that we race, it's a much easier track to just keep your track position. Like passing guys is hard, but main, t- you know, on the flip side of that, maintaining your track position and, Sort of putting your car where you need to to keep the other guys behind you and backing guys up going into the corner so you get a really good runoff. Like nobody's going flat through three and four behind you to get a big, you know, to to get a big run. I mean, I, there's an element of like we're in this kind of weird downforce zone for the power that the cars have on the short ovals right now, which is like when the, when the cars had more downforce and so you could run almost flat or flat behind another car through three and four you it was almost like there was more passing when that was the case because you'd at least just get this out of basically from the exit of two all the way through three and four onto the front straight you get a big draft and a big toe up behind a guy and pull out and get him going into one and two so i think all of these things you, you could any team or driver or group could have looked at all of those factors and said we think given in the right circumstances we could go through we could start to lay this out to three stop it. It just turned out that these were the only guys that really had the confidence to do that. It seemed like, and, and so part of that is Scott Dixon actually executing that. But I think a big part of that is just knowing what you've got and knowing that Scott Dixon is the guy in, in the seat going into it and that he's the guy that can, that can pull this off. Like if anybody in the field is going to be able to pull this off, you've, or, or, Kind of to your point, like even if anybody else does the same strategy, chances are because you've got Scott as your guy, he's going, this is something that he is truly exceptional at. Among, you know, if if it's just head to head outright, you just got to rip the lap time. He's among a group of six or eight guys now that kind of can do that extraordinarily well. When it comes to stuff like this, he's still just clearly at the top of the heap again, you know, I go back to kind of my bingo card analogy, like, because you're also Ganassi and Honda and lo- like all of these other things. So, um, it was a bit of a perfect storm. Like you needed, uh, he, he, I think they probably needed the caution at the beginning of the race to commit to it. They, you needed to have Scott Dixon as your guy. You needed to be in a Honda. You know, you needed to know that your car was good, which Ganassi did. But the last part of that puzzle is even still having all of those things really having a lot of trust and and faith in the decision making kind of process there to say no we're just we're just going to do this and it's going to work so that that actually just kind of knowing how um knowing how much you knowing how much uncertainty there is within teams about what strategy you're going to pick and how it's going to go and all that kind of stuff going into every race regardless of where you start I think I just I don't want to underappreciate, you know, how much kind of I'm sure time and thought went into just deciding that this was even on the table and then committing to do it. There was and how big of an impact that played on the fact they did actually execute this strategy.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone.
3: Interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best. And that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it is versatile, high quality and durable and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odour technology for more wears between washes so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to r-h-o-n-e dot forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort.
2: All right, so a 22-second victory for Dixon shows that that strategy was the right one to be on. I guess another kind of interesting factor that you did touch on that just wanted to kind of mention in a tiny bit more detail was the the fact that it was a kind of single-file race. And when we had the caution with 122 laps to go, I thought... Is Dixon going to, is he going to roll the dice here? And when he did, um, again, we're speaking with the, the the luxury of hindsight here, JR. But the fact that it was so difficult to overtake just made me think that even if Dixon was in a position where someone like Pato or Joseph is hunting him down over the final stint on fresher tyres with more fuel and Dixon's kind of like trundling around trying to make a a fuel number, that it was, it was so difficult to even pass the slowest back markers in the field that I kind of like my chances if I'm Dixon there being sat out front with the track position. And I guess we should quickly just mention why that was a little bit, I guess, because Gateway have done a lot to improve the kind of two wide racing over the past sort of two or three races. And a big part of that is the, the highline session where they just get people to, to run up high. But because of the, the weather on Saturday, we had so little running either by Indy Lights or IndyCar. Um, obviously the the qualifying session didn't take place until until race day, but just much less rubber going down. Um, and when it did go down in the race, it was kind of the the race kind of started single file, and then the marbles are kind of in that little kind of second lane. We didn't have really have anyone kind of venturing up to the high line early on, so it kind it was kind of the worst case scenario for the the weather, the way it fell on Saturday to to ruin all of that track time, and it really cost the the race that that kind of second second lane there.
1: Yeah, I think that, and and I think there's also you know gateway. We, I think a lot of people look at Iowa and gateway and think they're similar enough. So you sort of anticipate that the racing should be relatively similar, but they're just not, I mean, gateway, the, the biggest factor in why the racing at Iowa is as good as it is there's there. And the tracks are different in a lot of ways, actually, like when you get kind of into the gritty detail of it, but in terms of the sort of macro factors, the biggest one is the fact that gateway does have, or that, um, Iowa does have progressive banking. So as you, from the bottom lane to the second lane, the second lane is a little bit more banked than the bottom lane is. And so, and I, it's like, it makes me wish that every oval track we went to was like that because it just, you know, like Homestead used to be like that, which sort of uh, offered up a benefit, like a gain, whether it be, whether it necessarily be right away, you're always running more distance to run a second lane up. But, as if you ever get into a situation where you're not flat out through the corner, then going up at which at, at, at all of these short ovals, the guys aren't flat anymore because of the downforce reduction from, you know, the, the arrow kit cars to the universal kit that we're on now that going up into that second lane at a bare minimum saves you some tire life, like without question. And so, because you're just having, it's just less, less, less kind of, Max steering input through the middle of the corner, less energy being put through if the car is understeering your right front, if the car is oversteering your right rear. So everything just settles down a little bit when you get up into that second lane. And at a point, it starts becoming faster. And so I think in the absence of that, it's almost like you really need, you know, we talk about downforce levels and all this kind of stuff. I mentioned earlier that the racing in this case may be slightly better if you had even more because you'd be able to like rip through three and four, just because I, I mentioned that just because we've seen it and it'd be, and it's on offer. Like the cars have that available. The other, the, the alternative, you really want good racing in a place like this is that it actually needs to be less so that you're sort of just like moving up into that second groove as a part of your normal racing. Like you almost probably start diamonding one and two a little bit or or entering much higher to be able to roll just a slightly larger radius around the corner you get into the reasons that you run a second lane at you know that you used to run the second lane at like texas or fontana maybe is a good example of a place that not progressively banked but you just end up going up the hill because you need you need to steer a little less in the middle of the corner and that, that ends up you know being of benefit and so I think in the absence of those things being the case, this is just kind of gateway as we're going to see it for the, you know, like the, I personally think even running, even doing a lot of highline running in practice, it's just, it's just kind of a one lane track. Like the, the bottom lane is always going to be faster. And, and as soon as you get into a long green flag run you you just need you need need more disparity in the speed of cars you need more disparity in terms of the straight line speed to the mid corner speed like some of these things just need to fundamentally change to be able to address this at a track that doesn't that isn't progressively banked. because if it's not progressively banked then there's basically no there's almost there's there's going to be almost no benefit to going out to a second lane just to run there because you're not getting the corners are tight enough that you're still in like a big arrow wake From the car in front of you even if you're you know on this on the super speedways and stuff just moving up half a lane or moving down half a lane makes a pretty big difference in terms of how much kind of clean air you feel like you get because the radius that all the cars and so the radius of the wake of the car in front of you is much less much more straight basically whereas you know when you're turning you're just getting that blow off basically of the arrow wake of the car in front of you kind of like drifts out into that second lane so anyway I guess it's all just to say that, you know, I think that did play a big factor and to your point, an even bigger factor. Like we really only saw guys using the second lane on like the first in three and four on the first lap of a starter of the start of the restart. We saw very few of those moves stick basically. Um, and that that ended up playing a pretty significant role, I think, in Scott maintaining the degree of the track position. Advantage that he had by being on the because when he you know even at that yellow he he basically just cycled to the front and ended up on the same strategy as everybody else. So Scott Scott had no he had he had the advantage of just being in the Cappard seat basically at that point. But they had all pitted in essence you know they were all on the same strategy as leaders at that stage. Um, for him then to decide well I'm still just gonna do one stop less than everybody else that was definitely a a ballsy move. But I think part of that was, you know, I, I would guess that part of that was informed by the fact that it's like once you have a lap on the field, this is just not a place the way the racing played out that anybody was going to be able to make that up. I mean, you know, you watch Scott driving around. I was just sitting there thinking, like, maybe he's just out here, like he you could be purposefully just like backing everybody up behind you a little bit and and have that not be even obvious that that's going on because there's just, you know, it seems like every car was just three car lengths apart the entire way around the track, and even the fastest guys, you know, I I imagine that if Pato or Joseph, Joseph before he was out, Pato, any of those guys, if they had had clean air compared to Scott Dixon's legit clean air pace, it would have been night and day, but they just couldn't use it.
2: I guess one of the other worst case scenarios in all of this was that we chose this race to have the alternate tyre for the first time on on an IndyCar Oval, because although the teams were mandated that they couldn't start on the soft tyre, so we didn't get the horrendous marbles like from the start of the race. We we still saw most people kind of switch to it in the second stint and uh, I guess add to the marbles. If you just think about it from a simplistic point of view of if we'd have just had the the harder tire, there would have theoretically been less marbles than, than what we had with a with the softer tire. It's maybe not as, maybe it's not as simple to say that, but I definitely don't think it, it helped the the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I guess I, yeah, I think you, you ended up, and I'm sure Firestone was very, Careful not to produce like you didn't see an enormous difference in you know performance or or frankly longevity in the two tires. So I don't think there was a huge difference, but yeah, to your point, you know that doesn't it doesn't help to have because it probably it, it, like maybe one of the bigger differences it might put off more marbles than the, you know the, like that might be that might have been the most significant factor just as we sort of test and trial doing something like this. I mean, you figure Firestone basically is testing a a different tire more or less in the race weekend here, you know, in terms of the way that, yeah, they, they've they done test days with uh, with teams and whatever, but you're not going to get everybody on it. So you're not going to really see what various different setups and various different strategies kind of look like here. So
2: the longevity issue is all well that you mentioned. I think that's, it's important we kind of break that down a, a tiny bit because Dixon did 60 laps on the, on the softer tyre uh, no one else did more than 45 from the lead group so he had fifty laps on everyone else there which I saw a few people kind of being like oh you know Dixon uh, amazing. He's, you know, so much better at tire saving than, than everybody else. And there probably is an element to that, but also I don't think any of those drivers had to try and push it to 60 laps. I agree with you. And that
1: th- when we talked earlier, just at the, at the kind of intro to this general topic about gateway, you know, one of the things that was definitely just cro- had come across my mind was just the idea that it, it did surprise me how quickly it seemed like guys were bailing off of, were bailing for tires at the beginning of the race. And, and the only reason I say that is just because it just struck me that it was, and we didn't get a lot of onboards. And so there was, it was hard to tell like, okay, when Colton's diving for tires, when, you know, then, then that kind of kicks off this rush of cars coming in, which maybe at that point, maybe half or more of the cars that bailed out for, t- you know, to come in and pit basically what seemed like early before they needed to, to come in for fuel. Maybe that's just because they have pre committed to a four stop strategy. And so they don't need to make the fuel last. And so they're just covering, they're just covering the other guys. Like maybe that's, that seemed like for a bunch of those guys, that's probably what was going on there. It was basically just they're going to, if they're all going to end up on a four stop, then they're just losing track position by staying out longer. You know, just for how early that happened, there was also a part of it to me that seemed that it seemed like there was at least some of those teams and drivers that were pitting like urgently because they felt like they had to. And I guess that's just one of those scenarios where if you look at that relative to what Scott and those guys were doing, there was just a, there was a degree of patience that I think Dixon and that crew sort of had just to like weather the storm of tires going off and everybody starting to go slower and, and whatever. I mean, anytime that you end up seeing guys, that are still in good track position just start firing it into the pits because they're they feel like the car is going to shit. It's sort of one of those like from the outside you're watching it thinking like, well, everybody else is there's not really yet a lot of evidence that you're going to shit any faster than anybody else. Maybe just wait it out a little bit here to keep your strategic options open, but but then that doesn't end up happening. It just it surprised me how quickly the cascade of, you know, cars ended up Sort of coming in on that first, which, like I said, I mean, you know, if you're Chevy teams, maybe you're just thinking, there's no way we're three stopping this one way or the other. So we've got to stay ahead of Colton and whatever when they once they start to pit, because that's the strategy that we're going to be on. But anyway, I just thought that was, that was a, a pretty, there was a pretty stark difference in the urgency of, of pitting, especially in that first, in that first sequence, I thought.
2: All right. So on the penultimate stop, pato had got ahead of joseph um who had led pretty much the first hundred laps of the race i guess um i was kind of interested in pato more from a zoomed out perspective than in this race but he did well to get ahead of joseph and then joseph had just undercut it before joseph had had crashed out and that kind of put pato in a a really strong position there to be the the lead guy on that strategy even if it wasn't going to win him the race but how many um How many second places is that for Pato now? It's uh, a fair few on the season. We know he's been very public about he feels like he should have had that win by now and that a few kind of situations have have gotten away from him. But yeah, that's four second places on the season. So I guess, how do you kind of look at Pato's season at this point? Because uh, uh, across the course of the season, we've talked a lot about how, well, especially I have, about how I feel like he you know throwing away at least two you know strong results and then had another crash at at Detroit where he was probably out of scoring any decent points at that point but still you know still crashed out um when when there could have been some maybe a few more points on the table um negligible loss there but it was that kind of mid-season run that really cost him dearly but i guess how how do you look at pato do you look at him as a a lost title contender or is he someone more who has kind of impressed you to the point where he's kind of outperforming the the car he's in, because uh, I guess we've seen McLaren improve so much since they came into the series in in 2020. And a lot of that has just been making its car easier to drive for for all three drivers. But yet again, it doesn't matter who's alongside him, whether it's Alexander Rossi, Oliver Askew or Felix Rosenquist, Pato's, you know, he's light years ahead really, isn't he? When, when we actually break this down, especially when we talk about some of those things that you spoke about in our mid-season driver rankings about Pato just being able to access that kind of Polo level of performance. And for me this year, it definitely feels like only, only Joseph, um, Alex Polo and Pato Award have been able to access this kind of like peak performance that we've seen um, uh, across the year. Obviously none of them have done it quite as well as Alex Polo and Dixon over the last two races has been very impressive, but in in a slightly different way, I'd argue. So um, yeah, that's the question, I guess. Do Do you think he's a lost title contender, or is he is it should he not even be there in the first place? And he's kind of excelling above where um, that car should be.
1: Yeah, I guess I think that if he was genuinely a title contender right now, just points wise, we would just be absolutely falling over ourselves talking about how incredible a job he's been doing. So it's easy to look at. It's easy to kind of look at you know, the whole Long Beach debacle and crashing at Indy and the situation at Detroit as, you know, he's had some undeniable low points this year. And, and you can kind of, you could kind of, you can knock him for some decision-making in those, in each of those situations, maybe slightly differently kind of for each one or whatever. Like it's not all exactly the same thing that kind of results in those, in those outcomes. It's being on like the wrong side of the just being a little out of whack or or out of alignment in terms of probably like what exactly the right way to play those situations is and and each time kind of for different reasons you can tell that he's it's almost like there's still a little bit of experimenting going on inside pato in terms of how to how to kind of react emotionally you know whatever in in each of those scenarios so we we can see some growth or or whatever there's still some uh improvement kind of to be done on his part and you can see that he's kind of screwing around with how he addresses and treats those different situations to find the right solution to to inevitably just get the result that he's after um which is race wins or or whatever extracting the most out of the car that he can get on a race weekend or in a, in a particular race um i just i sort of watch like this race there's a lot of examples to your the the, the other side of this is that there there are just There's too many examples now over the course of the year where he's just managed to corner by corner, lap by lap, get the most out of this car in a way that it's, I I just sit there and kind of watch and go like, I just don't know that I really think that you stick anybody else in that thing and they're going to get any more out of it. And that part of that is, is an ability to keep it underneath them when And in those situations where for sure nobody else or very few other drivers are going to be able to do the same thing and just keep going at it, like Iowa stands out same as this race does, which is like, I bet if you just watched his onboard for the entire race, he's on average more, he's closer or or has more frequent moments over the edge than... Any other driver through the race, but it's just become his. It's it's a little Montoya esque, like it's just his natural operating zone. Like we talk about willpower being so incredible, at kind of just like you know throwing everything out and going and executing at this extremely high level, right on the limit in qualifying. It's almost like Patos kind of got that ability, but through the duration of a race, and and at that point, it is. It's actually more. It's not just throwing caution to the wind, it's 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 very consciously knowing that you're right at that limit and having not only the ability but the confidence to just stay there and and work work with it basically. So I'm I'm still as as much as there are some things that you kind of don't a hundred percent love about the way that Pato kind of reacts and whatever, like there's just no denying the skill and the talent and, and, and he, he, to be able to do the things that he's doing, to be able to finish second in this race, you, you had, you had, it's not just one thing. Like you have to be able to put together a very well-rounded, you know, set of things that you do extraordinarily well over the course of the weekend, over the duration of the race, uh, to be able to end up being the lead car on that strategy, doing the things that he's doing, not, not making Mistakes that are big enough that you're, you know, it's taking you out of contention, um, you know, all those kinds of things. You know, we should, we should shout out David Malukas for doing a lot of the same things extremely well, but I, you know, Pato, we've just seen this so frequently this year. That it just, it seems like if you, you know, again, we, we, uh, we talk about it in, in the context of this, of the rankings, whenever we do them, whether we be been season or at the end of the season, I, I think it's hard to always quantify what the impact, like where the teams are at relative to each other. But if we, I've, I've started to feel, you know, we, we talked about this in the midseason pod and it was part of my Feeling about Pato, you know, factored into I think both of our thoughts about Christian Lundgaard, you know, and that was prior to his win at win at Toronto. That if you, I feel like, even though the IndyCar series, everybody's got the same stuff to work with, all of this kind of thing, like we probably still don't quite factor in the differences. The average differences between the performance levels of the team enough. And in this particular case, if we just look at Errol McLaren, the best thing that we have to go off of is the fact that Rosenquist and Rossi are there every weekend as his teammates. It just still seems like Pato's kind of able to do these things that you just don't see from either of those other guys. And And you definitely are not seeing, it's like Rosenquist kind of has the ability to do a lot of the same things that Pato does, but not as consistently through a race. And so you see more of these highs and lows kind of not really averaging out. Um, Rossi's almost kind of the other way that you see him being able to work his way, ending up at the front of a group of cars, kind of like he's got the consistency factor, but maybe just isn't quite at that, risk threshold that pato stays at for the entire race so uh you know i think we both i certainly rate both of those guys very highly and and so to to just it's just becoming harder and harder to ignore basically that pato is still managing to get that little bit extra out and do these things you know almost every weekend that he doesn't have a, a slip up or or something kind of going going wrong whether that's on him or the team or or it's just happenstance or whatever so i definitely i think that if and we and we know that Errol mclaren you know they've made big gains over a kind of three-year stretch here but they have added a car full-time and there there are some reasons to think that maybe they're not quite at their full potential or, or not even quite at where we, you know, they've leveled out briefly here in terms of their ascent where some other teams maybe have still gotten her still getting better. So I think it's just one of those years that, okay, we kind of thought arrow McLaren and Pato were on this trajectory to end up as like a, almost like a title favorite. I think it's very possible that he's just not quite in that, position yet and it and that has nothing to do with him
2: yeah totally agree there's no need to throw hands on on that one um absolutely agree on mclaren as a whole as well i think people are quick to rule them out at the minute and i think the the pillow news has given them a reason to kind of be like well you know pillow doesn't want to go there anymore so how does that reflect on you know mclaren as a team and its reputation but for me the fact that they're running three cars out of a two-car shop um that, that is the schmidt peterson shop uh the fact that they've got the, the unlimited, not unlimited, but a very large amount of resources where needed, and that when Gavin Ward came in, he said he reckoned that the team could be as much as like ten years behind in terms of just the general logistical way that you go racing. Like some of the, even some of like the trackside equipment that you need and stuff to be in like a Penske Ganassi situation um, was lacking. So I, I definitely don't see any problem there in terms of um, uh, in terms of their future potential uh, you also shouted out david malukas which um i'm glad you did he delivered a very just a very sensible race there wasn't many like moments um like there was last year necessarily where he was like flying past people or anything like that necessarily but just a very sensible race at, at a time when you could have a young driver get really excited in that situation where he knows he's got a good car underneath him um, and and being on an oval you can take some big risks and there can be some big rewards but some some big uh, some big downsides as well. so I thought a really sensible performance and, and the total opposite basically of what we saw from him last year you know he took that that level of performance that the car had last year and rang the neck out of the car and uh, this time a much more kind of measured approach was needed and I was impressed with how he how he uh, kind of undertook that. Uh, let's move on a little bit um we mentioned Joseph Newgarden's crash earlier. I don't want to get too deep into this JR because it's a really complicated topic and there's a lot of elements to it but I'm just kind of interested in the the if if we kind of see Joseph's season from a, a whole now it's it looks quite similar to last year in the sense of lots of wins lots of bad luck and misfortune and probably some missed opportunities both on the team side and and on Joseph's side as well um like as a driver how do you Joseph's going to come to the end of this year now and he's going to know, he doesn't need us to tell him all of this stuff. Like he knows that the team as a whole needs to be more consistent in, if it's going to win a championship, right? Like he knows he can win five races in a season and it feels like that's not even a big thing for him at the moment. Like he can just rip those off and that's just the level that his peak performance, you know, is capable of reaching. But it's those, it's those days where he needs to put the, fa- the fifths and six in when, when he's finishing much further down, as we all know, like Joseph knows all of this stuff. I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not speaking to him on on this case, but when you look at even Marcus Erickson, but looking at Dixon, especially, like if you take his Long Beach race out of the equation, his worst finish this season is seventh. Like that's a spectacular level of consistency. And we've seen similar things from Alex Plow, his worst, worst finish is eighth. Uh Marcus is he's had a few tenths, but I think his mid-Ohio crash on the first lap was his main like mulligan out of all of that. But basically what I'm getting at is these drivers are the same, we talk about these same people at the end of every year as being the people who are able to do that and, and create that level of consistency. And as I said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that eat into that, right? But as a driver, when you come to the end of the year, you know, that's the case. You can see all of these other people doing that and you, and you haven't been able to do it for multiple years. How do you go about trying to, to remedy that and and trying to, I guess, just understand from a driver's point of view, like, where you're going wrong in that sense, because that Joseph's doing the hard bit. He's you know he's winning the races. It's the it's the other bits that he needs to 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 try and work out, and that must be a really difficult task for a driver when you come to the end of a year to be able to be like, how has that happened, and how do I fix it moving forward?
1: Yeah, it's it's hard for me to put myself in Joseph's shoes here because he's just he's at at a general level here and and operating with Penske, and it's a situation that I guess I I don't have like quite enough familiarity with with what that's even like kind of to be, to be in that environment, to really know what the, you know, exactly. And, and Joseph's definitely evolved in terms of his, you know, thinking and approach. And and we've talked about that a little bit at different times on the pod and, and whatever, like he's, you know, you, you got the sense that this was a little bit of like checkers or wreckers in terms of the, the mindset here, which like, I, you know, I, are we going to find fault in that? Like, I don't know. No, I guess. But I guess it just in, in contrast to Scott Dixon. So we'll just kind of think about it along, along those lines. Like, and I can speak to just my own experience being, whether it be an Indy car or it be even an Indy lights or, or whatever, like, you know, I kind of have to go back to, go back to a whole different period of my career to say like, okay, I really knew I was in a good car with a team that was capable of, that you know, those things, not to say that I, you know, maybe haven't been since, but, but driving for one car teams and, you know, not being, not being in scenarios where you're racing for Andretti, Ganassi, Penske, like these teams that you really do, that you, that you really truly from top to bottom have the expectation that you are there to compete for wins every weekend and win championships. You know, even at Ed Carpenter racing, it's kind of like, okay, we know there's a few places that we're going to show up at during the year that we should have the expectation that we're, you know, going in, going into that level. So, but even in it, at those places, I feel like even just kind of my experience that I've had going to those places with ECR, you know, showing up at Iowa where, you know, Joseph had just won the year before or whatever, that you can kind of have two different mindsets. And I feel like this is a little bit of what I see from like Dixon and, and it seems like Palo. And, and there just seems like there's a bit of a difference in the way that Joseph and the two crew approach, you know, weekend to weekend. And especially as you kind of get into these, you know, you're trying to claw back a lot of, a lot of time is, or a lot of, uh you know, a lot of points or, or whatever is like, I, I feel like Scott basically just, he does not think about, he's, is not thinking that like to him. I I feel like if you ask Scott about the next race or where he's at in the points or what he's going to do next year or what he's having for dinner or whatever. He's just like, it's just going to be whatever it's going to be. And so then he goes and gets in the car and he just goes and drives the car and kind of like his general demeanor and the way that he approaches practice qualifying a race week and the way he gets through the weight race weekend, like there's, it doesn't like, there's not a lot of emotion connected to the whole thing. Like he's just sort of getting in, he's going and doing the thing that he's there to do. And it's, it seems, and, and this is, this is kind of like oversimplifying probably what a, what elite drivers experience and go through, but it's like, You get the feeling that he just kind of knows that he's going to get in the car and he's going to get everything there is to get out of it. And, you know, he's going to the team's got to do their job and he's got to do his job. And he has a degree of just like faith that if that that that's going to happen and that if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And so we'll either be celebrating. At the end of the day, because everybody did that, and I did that, and the team did that, whatever, or or we're not, and we'll kind of like do a post mortem on it, and either and be like frustrated or or whatever by it when it happens. But it seems very step by step, and and kind of taking things as they come. Um, you know, we we've talked. I've I've definitely talked about polo kind of in that same context. Alex has a little bit more of just like a baseline intensity to him than Scott does he and Scott's are very different they seem like quite different people when you sit down with them. Um, but just in terms of his outlook, it seems similar that it's just kind of like well, we're just I'm just going to go out and 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 do what I'm here to do and and that those guys they just seem like guys drivers and and kind of within their teams that they're it's very rare that it feels like they overreach really in terms of what you just see from them going through weekends. And sometimes sometimes maybe they also are not quite reaching their absolute potential. Like that, maybe you you could make a case for that. But when I guess, so circling back to Joseph here, it just seems like there's been, you know, we've gone through a few years here where there's just been a degree of undue or unnecessary pressure that's that exists whether whether it's him or it's the team or it's roger or it's i don't i don't it's it's hard it's really difficult to kind of peer in from the outside and you know figure out like where is this where is that originating um and it's in more often than not in these kinds of situations it's coming from more than one place it's not just one person that's kind of creating this sense of like okay, we got to go out and like kick ass this weekend. You know, like it's, there's like this built up energy even going into the weekend that something has to occur and you have to just like force that out of, you have to force that result out of it. And so I guess I feel like to me, it's hard to, it's hard from the outside to have the feeling and I could be wrong. Like maybe that's not the vibe that it is actually existing within the two crew, but it sort of seems like that from the outside and that while like I look at Laguna last year and him like stuffing willpower going into the corkscrew for second place or whatever it was like, there are some things like that, that maybe you just don't get these moments of brilliance without that ultra competitive attitude and energy. Like that was not something that I had to think Scott was going to do in a million years, you know, like to go just, smash that in the middle of the race, like super high risk move. Um, You know, Joseph has created this, this air of like, you just don't want to see him coming in your mirrors basically because he has this energy about him. But it just seems like there's a little bit of that, that I'm not sure it's, I'm not necessarily sure it's the thing that's creating for the good results. And it seems like at times like this, just this, this race in particular. So, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this, you know, and I don't mean to be piling on basically, but just in this particular case, it sort of seemed like the vibe was a, a little bit similar to Pato at Detroit. Like I had to make this happen. I had to make this, this was like all or nothing in that moment to, to get the result that we needed here. And it's kind of like, Hey, I, I would disagree with that um sort of conclusion like i don't think that that was all or nothing in that moment this was not the last lap of the race for the win like that's all or nothing for for a position this is not and b like i just don't know that that made it didn't like make sense to me as a as a rationale for the, the just general like approach to the race at that point in the race anyway, like the race is just going to be whatever it's going to be. There might, there might, there's going to, there's a limit to practically speaking to how, how many cars you can pass, like how good your car is relative to the car in front of you. And there's an element of like, you you can't just, you can't will more performance out of the car at a point. And so I guess that just kind of struck me that to, to your initial point, like, maybe we're just trying there there are situations where it seems like they're trying too hard to get get a result that isn't there and they're ending up kind of on the back foot and missing out on just the best that was available in some of those situations so i you know i again like it's it's tough when in joseph's case in particular it's really hard to make sense of how much of what i'm talking about there that that may be detrimental Like if you, if you take your foot off the gas in those situations, maybe you're also not getting five race wins and, and you're in exactly the same. I'm not in the championship hunt for that reason. So it's, you know, he's the guy in particular that I think it's really difficult to figure out, like maybe you just take it and kind of deal with it. But, um, you know, Colton has, we've talked about Colton, I think in, in a kind of similar vein, I think Joseph is, is certainly more well-rounded than Colton is at this point but yeah it's a it's a tricky one to kind of do the math on and really figure out like what's the alternative is the alternative better or not
2: We'll ask joseph about it next time we get him on the show i guess moving on from the race a little bit joe i just wanted to round off a couple of very quick news stories one of them being a friend of the show marcus erickson has finally had his future confirmed he'll be andretti starting from next season on a multi-year deal Uh, i guess it was kind of moving in, in that direction especially kind of became obvious in the last couple of weeks. I think um McLaren maybe threw a spanner in the works a little bit as a potential destination for him, but I think he's probably had his mind made up for a little while now that Andretti was going to be the place where he could go. It's kind of interesting because they're they're kind of polar opposites, Marcus and and Andretti in many ways. Marcus is the consistent point scorer who, you know, is capable of winning races and and, you know, strong performances, but is also that's kind of his trademark is strong kind of runs over a championship and, um, making sure he's basically in the, in the top 10 and Andretti seems to be the opposite of that basically win or that like, don't finish in the top 10. So, um, that's a very simplistic way of putting it and probably quite facetious. So apologies to Andretti, but you kind of get what, <laughs> I'm, you get what I'm saying. You get what I'm saying there. So, <laughs> I do. um, that, that that combination will be uh, kind of interesting to see if Marcus can help Andretti improve on the consistency side and whether um, Andretti can help Marcus score pole positions and, you know, find some of that more, more of that kind of performance that we link to like Colton Hurter and Kyle Kirkwood, like some of the, whether it be qualifying laps we see them do or some of those kind of race stints where they're particularly impressive. Um, so it could be a marriage made in heaven for those two that they both improve the, maybe their slight weaknesses on, on both sides. So we'll ask Marcus about that. I'm sure we'll get him on the show in the near future. The other news story that's broke, um, interestingly, while we're recording, just to throw a nice spanner in the works for our our editor, Johnny. Sorry about that, Johnny. But uh, yeah, Simon Pagino is not going to race in the final two events of the season. He'll be replaced by Tom Wonkvis. Simon, obviously suffering with, a, suffering with a concussion. And this is a piece of news that we definitely um, didn't want to see. I know, JR, you've been quite vocal on social media about um, the the kind of fine line between celebrating a, a substitute driver coming in um, and the kind of like the noise around that and the kind of happiness of like a driver getting a chance like Linus Lundqvist as a rookie. You know, he's, he's come in, um, made a great impression and it looks like he might have, you know, earned a Ganassi seat for next season. So that's a great story for him. But at the same time, um, it's hard to kind of shout about that, that positivity when a driver like that is announced, when someone like Simon is you know, sat on the sidelines basically through no fault of his own. It was, you know, that, that crash was not his fault. And um, now he's having to sit and and watch from the sidelines. So we definitely pass on our best to him. Um, Must be a driver's worst nightmare. Jr. trying to, um, I don't even want to try and like kind of navigate what Simon must be feeling at the moment or get into his head because it's just a a nightmare scenario that none of us really can, can even comprehend basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to talk about it for a second, I think just to give a little more context to why, like, why this is a little, why I've been sensitive to this is is just because it's it's like when you know. Cause people, people were talking about, oh, you know, it's like Chase Elliott, you know, when Chase Elliott broke his leg earlier, this it's like, okay, Chase Elliott broke his leg in a snowboarding accident. That's different. If even when guys get hurt in the race car because they broke their hand or have a broken leg or something like that, at least you sort of know that they're on a path to full recovery, like that that's going to happen. They're not, they're not sitting, they're just sitting at home waiting until they can get back in the car. They either know that they screwed up or it was kind of out of their control or whatever. But from a driver's perspective, there's not, you're not in this, you're, you're, you're yeah, you're playing the waiting game, but at least you kind of, you know what the time horizon is on that. You know, all the things that you have to do for that to change. And when it's a head injury or or a nervous system injury of any kind, you know, below the neck or whatever, these are just like, we're, we are talking about Simon Pagano's career at this point. And, and the, the fact that we don't know when we don't know what that time horizon is for him to be, for him to be better. This is the type of thing that impacts people's lives away from the racetrack. Also, this is like, you know, depending on where Simon's, I mean, it makes me very concerned concerned for Simon and like i, you know, this is kind of one of those it's like a little bit of a taboo thing that we don't really talk about that much in racing but it really does like it makes me worried for him that it's taken this long that he's still not getting cleared that they've just decided that he's not going to be cleared to the end of the year and so part of it is is i guess as a driver, you know, making sure that we kind of just as a community have enough sensitivity to the fact that This is different when it's a head injury, particularly in this case, because it's just like, it's a total, uh, he, Simon and every, you know, everybody that's kind of with his family, whatever, they're going through a very, they're charting like, they're, they're going through uncharted waters here in terms of like week to week, what's going on. And so I guess that's, you know, that I guess is just kind of where I'm at with this. So, I mean, it makes sense to me. I'm, 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 the flip side is, is for sure that I'm happy for, I'm super happy for, Linus in particular to have got an opportunity here because he was a hundred percent deserving from somebody of getting stuffed in a car. You know, you'd like to think that at some point that was going to happen, but you know, we can see sort of that trajectory. And for, for Meyer Shank and for Blomquist, like this makes sense, basically, like just get him in the car so that he can start prepping for next year um, as frequently as possible. So I, there's, I've got no gripe with you know anybody doing any of that kind of stuff, and it definitely makes sense for those guys. I think, and and honestly, there's I, I can speak for myself, and and I know that there are some other guys that have been in this position. Like if the if the current concussion protocol had been in place five years ago, like there have been a lot of us that would have been missing races.
2: That's such an important thing to to raise because I think I, I immediately think back to Oliver Askew with this because he was the most recent kind of example of yeah. this happening, and his his family had noticed changes in his behavior and you were talking about how it impacts people's lives. Like this is much bigger than racing. And the, I think the risk that we have with all of this is how is this managed to a point that if a driver does feel these symptoms, how is it managed to a point where they're not discouraged from making those symptoms known and getting the help that they need? Because we know, you know, I'm not talking about this in a specific sense that I know that there's a driver who's had a concussion and he's driven with it before. But uh, over the course of the past like 50 or 60 years, um, even like maybe even 10, 20 years ago, and just when concussion wasn't as well known about, or the research hadn't been done to the to the extent that it has now, we maybe didn't understand it in the same in the same way that we do. People must have raced with concussions and and in periods where they should have been getting help and they should have been should have been sidelined because of it. And I think it's it's such a difficult scenario because the What can happen is, I mean, in the sense of Oliver Askew, McLaren said that they'd already made the decision to move on to a a different driver for the following year. But when you've got drivers in contract years, and I'm not speaking specifically about Simon and Maya Shank now, but just from a general point of view, if you have a driver who has a concussion in the second half of the season, you run the risk of them not being honest and not coming out and and, and admitting that they've got the concussion because they're worried they're going to lose their seat for for the following season. And I really hope we can find a some sort of middle ground or a way that this can be discussed in a way that, um, encourages those drivers to, to be honest and come out about that and, and, and get the help that they need to, to move forward and that people understand the severity of what a concussion is and what it can do to, to somebody as a whole. And, and it doesn't become this thing that, oh, I'm worried about losing my seat. Um, you know, I might not race an Indy car again. It's, it's really difficult and I'm sure that's, you know, sometimes these things, manifest in a way that they can't be hidden but you know sometimes it's not always obvious immediately to people that they have got a concussion and it's not it's not um this is not something that's always like a b and c things happen after this after the after whenever you get the concussion that you can immediately diagnose it it manifests in different ways things can be different so it's a it's a really important debate that needs to be had and i think something that needs to be looked at specifically to motorsport because we see this happen in other sports, especially obviously American football in the NFL, it's been a big topic of conversation for quite a few years now. And that's helping by bringing it into the spotlight a bit more, help people knowing a bit more about concussion. But there's still a lot more to do in, in terms of being motorsport specific, I think.
0: based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsns varies
2: by zip code and package high speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply let's move on to portland very quickly jr uh, i guess all eyes are going to be on the championship and whether alex can, alex plok can wrap it up this weekend um dixon needs to outscore polo by at least 21 points i think to have a, to to keep the the hunt alive going into laguna seca i think I think Scott's still of the opinion that this one's kind of over. Um, I did ask him about it in the kind of uh, in the post-race and he didn't say it was over. Like he's, he's maintained that hasn't he throughout. Um, he's been very kind of anything can happen about this whole uh, thing in the, in the running. And that has kind of, I guess when he says anything could happen, him winning two races in a row from 16th and 15th on the grid is kind of like anything could happen, right? That's good evidence um, that anything can happen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but but a 74-point deficit over two races against the guy who's won at both of these venues in the last two years really seems like something that's going to be difficult to do. But like I said, um, I asked him about it and he was hopeful about it. Um, I guess, where do we go with this? I mean, Portland's one of those races where, again, anything can happen. Uh, we've seen that in the past uh, few years, especially with, with Palo's win a couple back. Um with that kind of wild strategy where everyone kind of went off at turn one and then pitted and then managed to shave a, a pit stop off there and and get to the end and uh, I guess that was kind of like a calmer situation where Pelot had been pushed off the track and still got the win in the end because of how the, the strategy played out um, is there anything that you'll be looking for going into Portland I remember last year it was kind of like a whole um, Ganassi and Penske had tested at Portland and Laguna Seca and we didn't really know how those kind of two final races were going to play out but that's not the case this year and we'll have a a pre-race test at Laguna uh, just before the the race weekend. So uh, I guess I don't know if there's anything new that you're looking for this year or anything specific, but um, uh, I guess what we do know is that that race race can throw up something unusual and there could be a scenario where Dixon keeps us alive um, heading into Laguna Seca, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it's possible for sure. I mean, these 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 both play; these are both places. If you just asked me at the beginning of the year, where do I expect Alex Pillow to be the best? Like, where are places where I think he's going to win or where he's got the best chance of winning races? These, these two would be in my top five. <laughs> so that kind of doesn't bode well for Scott, I don't think. But, uh, you know, part of that is like the Ganassi cars have been really good at both of these places. Scott, you feel like is on a little bit of a roll here just in terms of maybe feeling like he's... You know, he and that team are are getting the getting more out of their weekends than they were at the beginning of the year or or than they did last year or whatever. So um I definitely wouldn't discount Scott's ability to go jam it on the pole at one of these places and and at least yeah, at least give himself the chance to take advantage if something doesn't I mean, I think it's more it's more likely that like even if Scott's on pole, that Alex is also in the top six, and if you're the if you're the 10 crew, you just shadow the nine crew through the race. And I sort of think that's probably what's going to happen personally, but you know, there's, there's definitely, there's a chance that at least Scott can, you know, that's not that many spots If Scott's if Scott's a podium contender, then that means that he's just got to be kind of three to five, you know, depending on where he's out on the podium, three to five spots ahead of flow, which could happen just basically for any variety of reasons. So I don't think it's, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, thinking the odds are that this goes down to Laguna, you know, just from a straight up points perspective, but there's definitely, you know, Scott has done a pretty incredible job over these last two weekends to keep it within sight, to make that a possibility. I I also think there are some other guys, you know, McLaughlin could be a spoiler and just be taking points away from both of these guys, you know? So that's, that's actually, I think probably a bigger concern for Dixon is like, the more guys that are just ahead of both of them, the worse that is for Scott. And so, you know, it's it's important for that reason more than anything, basically, that, you know, Scott is, is really on his absolute best form to be able to qualify up front, establish, and basically be able to run whatever the best strategy is in, in contention for like a race win. If he can do that, then that's his best chance of ending up ahead of Alex, you know, more likely than not. If Scott's dependent on them being on opposite strategies and that playing out, that's you're just you're never that's a, that's always a low odds scenario. So I guess I think that that type of a performance is probably less likely, but yeah, you still expect him to be quite good there. I mean, he's definitely got a handle on the place. So
2: awesome! Uh, I'm looking forward to being on a time zone that's earlier than you, Joel. That'll be a bit of a change when I head out to to Portland instead of recording. Uh, I guess seven hours apart with me in the UK and you back in Boulder. We should uh, we should wrap up after after Gateway. Make sure you head to the-race.com where you can also read about uh, another topic that we've not spoken about on this episode, which I'm quite glad about because I'm, I'm already getting quite tired of it. It's the uh, Alex Palo lawsuit, the lowdown. Um, you can go to the race and read about Alex. Uh, he spoke to the media on Friday for the first time since all of this came about, so you can hear what he had to say about McLaren suing him uh, and you can also read uh, Zach Brown also spoke to the media for the first time generally since uh, the whole thing kicked off um, so you can read what he had to say about it as well I wanted to mention Christian Rasmussen as well he won his fourth race of the season in Indy Next he's got a, a strong lead heading into the final three races There's a double header at Laguna Seca for Indy Next so that'll be fascinating to see if Hunter McRae or Jacob Abel can push him a little bit further I think that one at the moment, it looks pretty wrapped up with three three wins in four races for for Christian. But um, I know Hunter has got the potential to will himself to the lead of that championship, such as his determination. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that uh, kind of uh, forming over the next few weeks. And finally, just one more piece of news that we need to update you on. Obviously, Jack Harvey uh, no longer driving for A-Hall Letterman-Lanigan for the last three races of the year. Connor Daly stepped in for the gateway weekend and was their top driver on his debut for the team but for the road courses we've got Yuri Vips coming in the ex Red Bull junior so we'll definitely keep a close eye on how he gets on I've got a lot of experience covering Yuri from from my career and um definitely a very talented driver behind the wheel I think he'll he'll come in and do very well on the road courses he's tested twice with Ray Hall in the past 12 months so that'll be interesting and it's already been uh, a hot topic: the fact that he was suspended by the the Red Bull program that he spent so long on for his apparent use of a racial slur during a live stream. And this is his first kind of uh, chance at redemption, I suppose. Uh, some people are calling it for him to to get a seat to come back and yeah to try and establish himself in IndyCar with a bit of a second chance given by Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan. So we'll keep a close eye on Yuri over the course of the next two races. Something tells me we'll be talking about him a lot more. On coming up pods. Um, I have some corrections to make from last week's episode. Uh, both of them from the same person who will remain nameless for this podcast because he's one of my favorite people in the IndyCar paddock, I don't want to throw him under the bus or have him um have our hordes of listeners um marching on his house with um torches or anything like that. Um so apparently I'm not allowed to say St. Louis, even though the the city of St Louis was founded by French settlers. So <laughs> apparently, I'm the one. In, I'm the one in the wrong here by pronouncing this St Louis, but it's St Louis, everyone. So sorry about that from from the English dude. And um, I'd also mentioned um, the, the IndyCar hybrid test, and apparently, I'd said that was at the Indy Road Course, which it wasn't. Obviously, that was the one that was at the start of the year. It was the the Sebring test happened a couple of weeks ago. So I hope that satisfies our anonymous uh, listener for, for this week's episode. Uh, I look forward to the email drop with all of the mistakes I made on this episode uh, coming up uh, next week. Just a
1: quick add, if anybody has more corrections in the future, please do it as a voice note so we can play them on the bottom.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 if you do that, I will distort the voice so that your identity is kept secret. I was just going to say, yeah, we
1: need one of those like, yeah, yeah exactly. I will Perfect. do that
2: because... Um, yeah I, I like those I, I like to learn i like to be I, I like to be putting my place every now and again you know i think i need it so thanks thanks for that that's all for this week's episode of the racing to car podcast you'll catch us next week after the portland race so we'll speak to you then